All right, we're in week four of Advent, and next Sunday is Christmas Day, which is really exciting to be able to celebrate Christmas Day on a Sunday together as a church. And so we've been building towards this by looking at a series of songs that Luke records in his gospel and the telling of the Jesus story. And these are all songs that different people, characters sing as they either prepare for or announce the birth of Jesus. And so far we've looked at Mary's song. She sings this revolutionary song in response to the news that she will be giving birth to Jesus, who will be the savior, not just of her people, but of the whole world. It's a subversive song about the role that he will play in altering history. Zechariah sings a song in response to the news of the birth of his son, whose name is John. And this song is all about God's graciousness and the way that he fulfills his promises to his people. Last week, we looked at John, who's more famously known as John the Baptist, and the song that he sings, again, in preparation for the coming of a king. And so all of that leads us to today where we are looking at the angels' song, this song, Glory to God in the Highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. So that is where we are heading. Let's pause here for a moment and pray, and then we'll get into it. Father, thank you for this community and what you're doing here and the life and the energy, the joy that we have experienced this morning by looking at Christmas through the eyes of kids. Allow that to be infectious and to help us as we reflect on the Advent season, as we prepare for Christmas, as we anticipate not just this holiday, but your eventual return to fully heal and restore uh, your creation. God, we ask now as we enter into a time of reflecting on your word that all the other stuff that's going on in our life this holiday season, family and planning and whatever difficulties that we bring into here this morning, God, that we would be able to hold that lightly, that you would soften our hearts and speak to us, that you would meet us where we are at in each of those things, each of those challenges that we face. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I want to begin with a story. Uh, when we lived in Boston, my family and I, we were in Boston before coming here to Oakland, and I had the opportunity at one point to go to the MIT Museum, MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. You've probably heard of it at some point. Famous school. They have a museum on their campus, and part of the museum, of course, is served as an advertisement to the school about how awesome it is and all that kind of stuff. But they also host exhibits, like any other museum host exhibits, and the time that I got to go was a really interesting time because there were two different things on display, two different primary exhibits, and they were very different from one another. So the first one was all about artificial intelligence and MIT's role in the development of artificial intelligence. It was very cool. Lots of cool stuff to look at. Robotic arms, learning how to do tasks, not just performing them, but learning how to do them. There's a whole section on MIT's role in the creation of the Mars rover, which if you're into space, that was like a really cool thing to look at. And then my favorite part of this particular exhibit was the robot dogs playing soccer against each other. I thought that was really cool. Now in the middle of all of this, there's a big sign. I took a picture of it that says this, artificial intelligence will help accomplish tasks undesirable or unsafe for humans, cleaning up nuclear waste, rescuing those trapped from a natural disaster, and cleaning homes. <laughs> the three great needs of our time, right? Nuclear waste cleanup, helping people in natural disasters, and dusting your shelves. Okay, artificial intelligence will solve these things for us. So that was the first 
exhibit. A lot of cool stuff in there. The second one was called Hidden Heroes, the Genius of Everyday Things. And this exhibit was looking at a lot of what we might consider to be ordinary, everyday sorts of products like rubber bands, paper clips, Velcro, scotch tape, a whole bunch of other ones. There's about 30 of these things, things that we probably take for granted. We probably have, you know, a dozen paper clips in our couch right now. And yet, these are things that have a significant impact on our lives. And what was interesting to me about this particular exhibit is that each one of those things had a story behind it. And that story was almost always born out of some practical need. So for example, coffee filters were invented by a stay-at-home mom who was tired of boiling coffee grounds every day and figuring out what to do with the mess that it made. So she invented the coffee filter. And for this, we're all very grateful, right? We don't have to deal with that anymore. My favorite one, though, is this. Sticky notes, the favorite item of all of our highly organized anal people in our lives. (laughs) Sticky notes were invented by a choir director who was getting frustrated with the fact that during rehearsal, their bookmarks would fall out of the pages and they'd like lose their place. And so out of that frustration, this guy invented the post-it note, this sticky piece of paper that you could put in there and not lose your place. This teaches us to never underestimate the power of a disgruntled choir leader. (laughs) So the question that hopefully is in the back of your mind is like, what does this have to do with Advent? Cool stories, Steve, but what does this have to do with Advent? Well, what was interesting about these two exhibits is they stood obviously in stark contrast to each other, right? And if I asked you to come with me to see robot dogs play soccer or to learn about paper clips, you'd probably be more interested in the robot dogs, right? At least I would be. There's this reality, there's this thing in us that is drawn towards the spectacular and the impressive, the cool, the new, the cutting edge. We have all these things in our life that tell us you know, what the best thing is and what's highly rated and what's good and what should we be excited about and into. And many times success is all about whatever is bigger, better, faster, stronger, cooler, newer, etc. But the Advent story, the Advent story is not big and impressive. It's not about cutting edge, cool new stuff. Look again at those three songs that we talked about, what we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks and who sings them. Mary is this poor, unwed teenage girl from nowhere. Zechariah is a low-level priest who ends up mute. John is a crazy guy out in the desert who eats bugs. These are not spectacular people. These are not the robot dog people of the world, if you will. These are paperclip, rubber band, scotch tape people. And yet, these are the people that God chooses. These are the people that God places in a critical role in his story of redemption. And we're going to see this play itself out again today in this text in Luke chapter 2. God turns the world upside down through hidden heroes. That's who God chooses. That's who God uses. So let's get started by looking at verse 1 of chapter 2 where we read this. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered or counted. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of 
Syria. If you were here last Sunday, this should sound familiar. Luke chapter 3 begins in a very similar way with Luke mentioning the people who are in power, the important people of the day. Here we see Caesar Augustus, the ruler of the Roman Empire. And he's an interesting character. We need to spend a moment talking about Augustus. You probably know his dad. His adoptive father was Julius Caesar. You had to read the play in your sophomore English class. Julius Caesar was betrayed and assassinated by those who were closest to him. This led to a bloody civil war. What was then called the Roman Republic split into a bunch of different factions and they all start fighting each other. And the result of that is a victory by Augustus. He's the one who emerges out of that victorious. He moves Rome from a republic to an empire. And in doing this, in consolidating all these factions and consolidating his power, he claims that he has brought peace and justice to the whole world. His state-sponsored poets and historians begin to refer to him as the savior of the world. And he does an interesting thing. He sort of retroactively proclaims his adopted father, Julius Caesar, as divine as a God, and he takes on the title Son of God. So here is the most powerful person in the world in Rome, the most powerful city, ruling as Lord, as Savior, as Son of God. And people begin to worship him in that way. This is something other Caesars would, of course, do as well, have people worship them as a God. So Luke wants us to recognize Caesar Augustus at the beginning of this text to orient us in history to kind of give the timing of the events but also to create this significant contrast this contrast between Augustus self-appointed self-proclaimed savior of the world son of God and then Jesus who the angels say is the savior Christ the Lord He wants us to see the contrast, to see the tension between these two kingdoms. Now back to the action of the events here. Augustus makes this decision to count everyone in his empire. It's a decision that has a ripple effect all the way down to Jesus' earthly family. Everyone must register, must be counted. And to do that, you have to show up in your hometown. Most people would have lived in their hometown, but Mary and Joseph are not there. So they have to travel this distance to a town called Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a fairly unremarkable place only known for a couple of things kind of like Salinas where I grew up we're known for a couple of things Steinbeck and bag salad that's pretty much it so Bethlehem an unremarkable town the only things that it's really known for primarily it's known for being the hometown of King David the most revered of Israel's kings that's sort of its primary thing it also though is featured in a very important Old Testament prophecy in the book of Micah. Micah 5.2 But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. This prophecy is 700 years before Jesus' birth. It connects Jesus all the way back to the beginning of the story, to God's big plan for the redemption of his creation. Pretty cool prophecy, but you do get a sense from there of the unimpressiveness 
of Bethlehem, how little it is. And yet, in this relatively insignificant town, this is where Israel's promised Messiah, where the true Son of God is to be born. And we're told of that birth in verse 7 of Luke chapter 2. Luke, very understated in the way he describes the events. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So here we see that not only have Mary and Joseph had to travel far from home, but Mary at the time is, the phrase in some texts is great with child. That, to me that feels like a great understatement of what's going on in pregnancy. Very pregnant, has to travel a long way. And then on top of all this, Jesus is not born in a nice hospital or a comfortable place, but in a barn. So you can see here, Jesus' origin story, messy, unusual, and not spectacular at all. Now here's what happens immediately afterwards, and this gets us into that text that Linus quoted for us so eloquently. In the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now, let's talk about these shepherds for a moment. Shepherding was a difficult, dirty non-glamorous, unimpressive kind of job. It was an important job. Jewish society was built on this system of sacrificing animals, in particular goats and sheep, to absolve people of wrongdoing, to restore right relationship with God and with each other. And so the shepherds had this interesting, important, unique role of watching over the sacrifices. Now, because of that important role, you might think that there was a sort of honor and prestige with being a shepherd, but it was actually exactly the opposite. Shepherds were considered shifty, dirty, and untrustworthy. If something came up missing, blame the shepherds. They're an easy target for that kind of stuff. A shepherd could not even testify in court because their word was considered so unreliable. So here we have the true Son of God being born to unremarkable parents in an unremarkable town in a less than ideal place out in the barn and the first people God decides to tell shepherds. The lowly, shifty, unreliable, blame everything, all our problems on them, shepherds. And so the question for me here is what is God doing? Why would he do it this way? And if I'm really being honest, it kind of makes me a little angry. You've got arrogant Augustus over in Rome claiming to be God's son, claiming to be the savior of the world, and then the actual son of God who you know, has been prophesied to be the actual savior of the world is born in Bethlehem of all places, and God decides to tell shepherds. And I think, wouldn't you want to make a bigger deal of that? 
When my kids do something cool, we're in a phase right now with our oldest daughter, four years old. She's really into monkey bars. And so every park we go to is like, where's the monkey bars and can I conquer them? And she's amazing at it. And so, you know, when she does this, I take a video of it. I send it to the grandmas. Grandmas are a great way to spread the news about something that your kids do. You know, I put it on Instagram or whatever. I want people to know about it. This is cool. Look what she did. What I don't do is go up to some random dude at the park and say, hey, my kid just made it across the monkey bars. Can you go tell some people? First of all, what is that guy doing at the park? And then, like, why would I tell him that? Why would I ask him to spread the news? This is sort of what God does. He gets the news out, but not to a reliable source, not in a place that was strategic, and not in a way that immediately changes anything. Jesus is born, and the next day, things pretty much go on the way they were before. And I think this is actually really important for us to think about for just a moment. We've been talking about how Advent is the story of the disruption of the status quo. It's been one of our themes for this series. And it certainly is that, but it doesn't happen quickly. It doesn't happen as fast as maybe you would expect or we would want. Augustus never met Jesus, probably never heard of Jesus. Jesus doesn't even interact with the Roman authority until the very end of his story when he's before Pilate. And of course, that's about what? It's about him being executed and put to death. And then just think about after his birth, he has to grow up and learn stuff and learn how to make chairs and all the things that carpenters would do. And he sort of hangs out for 30 years before he even goes about telling people who he is and inviting people to be a part of what he's doing and teaching people, and of course all that leads to his death and his resurrection. But even then, after that, his little band of followers is small, relatively insignificant. It does, though, start to grow and gain momentum to the point that Rome takes notice. And Rome begins to try to snuff it out. But 300 years later, the Roman emperor becomes a Christian. And not long after that, Rome ends and becomes a footnote in history. There is a confrontation. There is a disrupting of the status quo. It doesn't happen the way that we might expect. It all begins in this place of vulnerability and weakness and obscurity. It is a revolution, but it is a hidden revolution. And it doesn't start off all that impressively. And nobody illustrates this better, I think, than the shepherds. Think about the shepherds again for a few minutes here. Think about their lives. Most of it spent outdoors and all the elements, sun, wind, rain, poop, mud, all that stuff. Every day, more or less the same. You did not have a very good night's sleep. You'd wake up a lot to make sure there were no predators attacking your flock. Get up early in the morning, feed, find water, probably walk a lot, trying to find the next place to graze your flock. Not a lot of interaction with other humans. Shepherds didn't spend a lot of time in town, in the middle of the action. When they did go into town, people would you know, move to the other side of the street, walk a little faster, clutch their purse a little tighter. Shepherds were profiled, accused of stealing. They had what we might call a record 
Rich people who they would never be friends with would buy their lambs and their goats so that they could make a sacrifice to make themselves feel better. The highlight, and this is just sort of my interpretation of events, <laughs> but the highlight would be the moment when you could sit around the campfire with some other shepherds and tell a few stories. And that's probably what was happening on this particular night when these angels show up. Underneath all of that, Shepherds lived with the psychological reality of being out, of being an outsider, living under Roman oppression, but also Jewish rejection. They were deeply tied into the religious system, but at the same time were disconnected from that system, tied in economically, but otherwise outside. And so whatever else might have been going on for this particular group of shepherds, I think there was one thing they knew or felt with certainty. It was this. If God were ever to show up and speak again, it's not going to be here, and it's definitely not going to be to us. Why would he ever come here? Why would he ever tell us? No way he would ever pick us. Have you ever felt that way? Like, there's no possible way God could ever pick me. No way God could use me. Well, the good news, maybe it's not good news for you, (laughs) but the good news is that's exactly who God picks. That's who God uses again and again and again. God involving Mary and the shepherds and all these other characters is a foreshadowing of what Jesus is going to do in his ministry. In Luke chapter 5, just a couple chapters later, Jesus starts building his leadership team, asking different people to be on his team. We call these guys his disciples. He does not pick impressive, awesome people. He does not pick people with great resumes. Luke 5.30, this is a description of who Jesus hangs out with in a couple different translations. Notorious sinners. Publicans and sinners. Publicans is where we get the word pub. And then the New Living Translation says scum. (laughs) I like that one. The religious leaders of the day do not understand what Jesus is doing. Why is he picking these guys, these uh, notorious sinners? Why choose those folks for your team? Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, picking these surprising people wasn't just a strategy for executing the plan. It was the plan. This was always the plan. And if we're being honest, we're all Mary and Joseph and the shepherds. We're all notorious sinners. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There isn't another category of people. This is why the angels can say that the birth of Jesus is good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Good news for all the people, not the cool people or the important people or the powerful people or the most holy people. This is for all the people. The good news that unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And again, the language here is confrontational, subversive. City of David, king, 
Savior, King, Lord, King. This is King language. This is language that is challenging Augustus's claims to be Savior, to be the Son of God. And of course, the other part of the announcement is that all that you have been waiting for, all that you've been longing for is here. The King is here. And it is for, He is for everyone. The birth of the Son of God to teenage outcast parents in a nowhere town, miles and miles away from power, announced to a group of shifty shepherds, is telling us at every level of the story that good news is for everyone. And the whole story exemplifies the surprising way in which God works in Scripture, but also the surprising way He continues to work in us. God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And here's what's really beautiful to me about the shepherd's story. These very same despised people who guarded and kept watch over the sacrificial animals of the old system are the first who are invited to keep watch over the sacrificial savior of this new system. Old system, all about this continual effort to make sacrifices, to stay in right relationship. But this new thing that is happening with Jesus is about the final sacrifice that God makes to permanently restore relationship, to bring redemption to his creation. Jesus is God's grace, God's gift in the flesh. When God picks Mary, when God makes this big announcement to the shepherds, when Jesus chooses notorious sinners for his team, it's a reminder that all of this is grace. None of this is earned. No one is chosen based on merit or qualifications. It's all grace. It's all gift. And that's very good news. Here's how it ends. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Here's the one part of the story where God does something really impressive. This massive choir of angels. Yes, God uses the weak and foolish things in the world to shame the wise and the strong, but that does not mean that God is not strong. We don't have time here to get into a full theology of angels, but a couple quick things. Angels are spiritual beings who serve as messengers for God, and in addition to that, they serve as God's army. That's what that phrase, heavenly hosts, refers to. A host was a military unit. These are spiritual beings who fight for God's kingdom. And in the midst of sort of the vulnerable messiness of the Advent story, it's important to remember that behind this is an incredibly strong God. A God who fights a battle for us. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is the fight that the angels are constantly This impressive choir of warriors is a reminder to us of God's power and God's strength. He is the one who is strong for us, who fights for us. 
The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Now, putting this all together, taking all together, this is the good news. This is the gospel. God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, who holds everything together, who commands armies of angels, enters the world, our messy, mixed-up world, as a helpless baby. Announces this news to lowly shepherds and trusts the future of his plans for salvation, for redemption, for his redemption of creation to notorious sinners like you and me that's amazing that is amazing and that is the advent story it's a story that i think demands a couple of responses from us so first have you received this good news this is a very simple step god does not create hoops for us to jump through to all who did receive him who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of God. That's all you need to do. Believe him, accept him at his word, receive the good gift of his grace. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter what people have done to you. The shepherds and all these other characters show us everyone is invited to this party. And the only question is, will you come in? Will you join it? Second, I think this story forces us to ask the question, is the good news bringing peace? Part of the angel's song is this reminder that the realities of God's kingdom must be worked out here, on earth, in our real lives. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. So where is there a lack of peace? Maybe even more personally, this Christmas Advent season, who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to reconcile with? What hurt do you need to confront? What hurt do you need to let go of? Where do you need to experience peace? And then finally, is the good news producing joy? And I wish we had time to talk much more about this, but joy is one of those things that I think is pretty often misunderstood in church. doesn't mean that we're happy all the time or that we don't acknowledge things that are difficult. In fact, C.S. Lewis calls joy the serious business of heaven. And the word joy in the Greek in the New Testament, it comes from the same root word as gift and grace. Kara. Joy, gift, grace. Joy is not something that we can achieve or work ourselves into. It is something that we receive. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Joy is the result of experiencing that love, experiencing that grace. Joy flows from a grateful heart, overwhelmed by the good gift of Jesus, which is what Christmas is all about. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your grace, for your good gift of Jesus. And not just the gift itself, but even the way in which this all came about, the way that you use surprising, unremarkable, unimpressive people to bring about your plan of salvation. That is good news, I think, for each and every one of us. And so this morning, God, I pray 
For those here who maybe need to receive that as good news for the first time, that they would be willing and courageous enough to take that step. I pray for those of us who are not at peace or who sense that there is a lack of peace in the world, in our lives, in our relationships. May we take the steps that we need to take to move towards that, to move towards peace. And then finally, God, many of us struggle with joy. And so I pray that we would know and experience in a fresh way your grace and the gift that joy is because of what Jesus has done for us, bringing us into your family. And as we head into celebrations, even in the midst of whatever is going on in our life, difficult as those things may be, let us be grounded in that joy that comes from knowing Jesus. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.